Good afternoon and welcome to CSIS. Uh, I'm Steve Morrison. Uh, I direct the Africa program and the CSIS task force on HIV AIDS. Uh, we're thrilled today to, to have as our distinguished guest Robert Mallet. I'll introduce him in a moment. He's a friend uh, of, uh, known to many here in Washington for uh, the period, uh, people who have worked with him in, in different walks of life and different phases of his life here in Washington. Uh, he's a very esteemed figure, and we're thrilled that he's come here today uh, to address a critical issue around uh, the partnerships that have evolved over time among government, corporations, and foundations, with a special focus on, on global public health. Um, this is the 22nd speaker to come and speak here on the question of, of smart power as the follow-on to the Smart Power Commission. The Smart Power Commission uh, was, was created last year here at CSIS, co-chaired by uh, Mr. Armitage and uh, Professor Nye. Uh, it was an aim to bring together a very diverse, prominent group of Americans around a common problem of how to restore, restore America's standing in the world, how to bring about a better integration of hard and soft instruments of power uh, looking forward into the future, uh, it uh, came uh, to some uh, very powerful, I believe, conclusions, one of which was the enduring importance and rising importance of U.S. engagement uh, in global public health. We um, have, have, in the speakers that have come forward since we issued that report in November, as I said, this is the 22nd speaker, we've put a special focus uh, on questions around global public health, nutrition. Uh, we most recently had Josette Sheeran here from the World Food Program. Just prior to that, we had Tachi Yamada from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. So it's, 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 it's a thrill to, to have Robert here today. Robert is the Senior Vice President at the Pfizer uh, Worldwide Alliance Development, Philanthropy and Corporate Responsibility. He is also the president of the Pfizer Foundation. Um, in that role, he has been very uh, uh, central to many of the innovations that we've seen in the last several years uh, at Pfizer. Uh, the Global Health Fellows Program, work on trachoma, HIV, AIDS, malaria. Uh, we'll hear much more about that from Robert in his speech. Uh, in the Clinton administration, he was the Deputy Secretary of Commerce. Um, prior to that, he was the deputy mayor and city administrator here at the District of Columbia during the, the period of Sharon Pratt Kelly's period as mayor. Uh, he served as legal counsel for Senator Lloyd Benson uh, and has been a visiting professor at the JFK School of Government at Harvard where uh, uh, Joseph Nye uh, recruited him in. He is a 1979 Phi Beta Kappa graduate of the Morehouse College and a 1982 graduate of Harvard Law School. So please join me in welcoming Robert here today. Thank you. Thank you very much, and good afternoon to all of you. Good afternoon to all of you. Uh, I know it's after lunch, and the most difficult thing in the world is to hear somebody talk after lunch. Uh, but we will try for a few minutes to keep your attention. Thank you very much for inviting me to CSIS, uh, and thank all of you for coming out to uh, 
to hear what I had to say and to engage in a bit of a dialogue after I'm finished speaking. This past Sunday, the New York Times Magazine ran a very interesting profile. I don't know if many of you may have seen it. It was of Ala Ala Swani, the hugely popular Egyptian novelist. I didn't know that, know this, but he's also a, a dentist. Perhaps that may account for his ability to cause so much pain for the Mubarak government that he hates so much. Uh, but don't make a mistake. As critical as he is of his own government, Al-Aswani is stingingly critical of the United States. He calls us the imperialists who foster pro-American dictatorships and those things he hates. Now, on the other hand, if you read the article, Al-Aswani is a pretty complex man. He has a, a nuanced view of the United States. Now, the reason for that nuanced view is that he actually lived in the United States. He said he was very lucky that he had the opportunity to study in America, to have American friends, girlfriends. He said, you must have an American experience to know how decent and kind-hearted the people are there. Now, I don't think it's in the cards for everyone who hates the United States to get a master's in dentistry from the University of Chicago, as he did. But today, as we gather to talk about how we can help reshape and ease the hostility much of the world feels towards the United States, and Aswani, Aswani illustrates this point, uh, both obvious and it's overlooked. Frankly, we are more than the policies of our government, whatever administration is in power. We are as Aswani says, and I quote him now, the place where democracy as well as imperialism comes from. Now, how can we provide that insight to those who, not, who cannot come to our country to get a degree in dentistry from one of our premier institutions, to those who, who define us by arms and arrogance, to those whose contempt blinds them from seeing our compassion as ours sometimes blinds us? from seeing theirs. What power do we have that we might better use? That, I think, people are calling soft power today. It is what Dean Nye describes as the ability to get what you want through attraction rather than coercion or payments. It is the impact, he says, of Franklin Roosevelt's four freedoms in Europe after World War II, of young people behind the Iron Curtain listening to American music of liberated Afghans asking for a copy of the Bill of Rights. And I'll add another. It is also the impact, also the impact of people in some of the poorest and most deprived places in the world who are no longer afraid that the world's leading cause of preventable blindness will prevent them from seeing their children, their grandchildren, their future. Now, why do I add this? Because I believe, and the point I want to make to you today, is that we should be redefining what we mean by philanthropy. It means not just age-old grant-making, though that's just fine, because that leads to, it has very good intentions behind it. The new philanthropy means corporations and others working closely with governments, foundations, NGOs, to truly partner for sustainable and measurable impact. 
Now, I think I can illustrate this point with this example. The world's leading cause of preventable blindness is trachoma. It's an infectious disease caused by bacteria carried by flies. It was actually one of the illnesses that immigration officials looked for when examining millions of people who came in from other shores to Ellis Island. They would literally take a button hook and pull your eyelid and look for redness and swelling. If you had it, they sent you back. Our last recorded case of trachoma in the United States was in 1956. Today, most of the people who live here have never heard of it. But tens of millions of people live in trachoma endemic areas around the world, and they suffer from active infection. So we partner, as a company, with an organization, the International Trachoma Initiative. It's the leading NGO to fight trachoma and to help meet WHO's 2020 goal of ridding the world of blind and trachoma by 2020. Now, I was just this past week on Monday at a WH conference in Geneva to understand the progress that we're making in eliminating blinding trachoma. The goal is pretty ambitious to do this by 2020, and there are you know, upwards of uh, 84 million people in the world, and that estimate is being revised because of the efforts underway, but lots of people suffer from, from this disease. But the goal, actually, I'm now convinced after being at that meeting, is really reachable. We're making great progress. In fact, just uh, uh, two years ago, uh, tr blinding trachoma was eliminated as a public health threat in Morocco. It's an ancient disease, so that was cause for great celebration. We're also making progress because we're working together, governments, NGOs, private corporations, foundations. We're making this progress because we now have, in part, an antibiotic that has enabled us to make this effort doable. That's an antibiotic that we, we discovered and developed, Zithromax. But we're also making this, this leap forward because we don't just provide the medicine. We support a broader strategy that all of us together have put together, and it's called SAFE, and that's an acronym for surgery, antibiotics, face washing, and environmental change. Washing your face. That's not very high tech at a company that prides itself on its ability to stand on the very frontiers of science as it teases a molecule into a medicine. But treating illness doesn't always involve sophisticated technology. I saw this with something that happened in Ethiopia where 10% of the population is blind due to cataracts and trachoma. Cataracts is the leading cause of blindness in Ethiopia, followed by trachoma. In fact, cataracts is the leading cause of blindness in the world, something that no one in this room will ever necessarily have to suffer from. You won't have to go blind from a cataract. But in some parts of the world, you do. And in some parts of Ethiopia, due perhaps to religious custom, women did not relieve themselves during daylight hours. They did not go to the restroom, we would call it, during daylight hours because of their religious custom. They could only do it at night when it was dark. And for hundreds of years, that is what happened. And so our partners at the Carter Center taught and enabled villagers to build latrines so that they could go to the restroom in private, but also to improve sanitation. 
but no such private relief facilities had ever existed before in some parts of Ethiopia. In the Amhara district, they set a goal of 10,000 latrines during the first year. But once the women learned how to build them, the freedom that it provided them proved as contagious as any disease you might get. Within three years, they built not 10,000 latrines, but 306,000 latrines. Something as simple as a latrine relieved excruciating discomfort. The women said they would never go back to the old ways. And when Jimmy Carter visited them, they even gave him a new nickname, the father of latrines. (laughs) Now, I would guess that President Carter might not be the first president to be called something like that. But this was definitely the first time that it was meant as a high compliment. And in the context of why we meet today, that's very important. Because helping people shackled by the burden of poverty actually breeds appreciation. Helping to eliminate blinding trachoma changes the way people see us. Helping those who need help the most helps us. Kindness often begets kindness. That's true in the deserts of Africa, the mountains of Nepal, the rice fields of Vietnam, the flavelas of Brazil. And that's not just true of our battle against trachoma. It's true of all of our philanthropic efforts, efforts outside of government. Because the point worth making is not only that soft power is smart power, it's our greatest power. It's soft power, in the end, that's only the truest and most sustainable power. And it's only sustainable if we're all doing our part to make it so. Now, many people refer to the Marshall Plan as the model of our country's soft power, and rightfully so. America didn't just help rebuild Europe. We didn't capture the hearts and minds of the people of Europe then. We won them. We defined the ideas and extolled the values that would prevail in the Cold War. But when in 1947, when General Marshall, Secretary Marshall, told the graduating seniors at Harvard University that our policy is directed not against any country or doctrine, but against hunger, poverty, desperation, and chaos. He was actually talking about a government policy. But consider this today. Whether you think U.S. foreign aid, our official development assistance, is benevolent or begrudging, whatever you think about it, it is only part of our total humanitarian and development commitments around the world. And to his everlasting credit, President Bush has sought to increase that assistance, and that's been very good for our engagement around the world. Even so, by some accounts, non-governmental contributions to the developing world outpace official aid by more than four to one. Today, more than 80% of U.S. resources going to the developing world come from private coffers, and less than 20% come from government. Now, a generation ago, the opposite was true. Now, I think it is not partisan to say this, that we can all now see the consequences of using our military forces to accomplish objectives that may have been better served through other means. And I don't come here today to share any opinions about the war in Iraq, except to note that in addition to the costs that we see, the billions that we spend, the thousands dead and injured, there are those 
costs that we can't see, but they are no less real. And this is where soft power really plays its part. People who hate our foreign policy don't express it only by joining guerrilla movements or protests or burning the symbol of our freedom. Sometimes they do something as simple as refuse to provide directions to a lost American traveler in their country. Or perhaps, quite consequentially, they display a pattern of turning down contract bids from American companies because that traveler and the company are America to them. And those subtle and sometimes not so subtle signs demonstrate great danger for us as a country. That's why as a government, it is so necessary to twin hard power with soft. It serves as a leavening influence on the rougher edges of our engagement. And that's also why today if we are to make change systemic and lasting, if we want to restore a nation's reputation, if we are to do this by embarking upon a Marshall Plan for our own time, it cannot only be through government. Regardless of what power, what party is in power, regardless whether we're at a time of war or peace, philanthropy, the new philanthropy, must complement statecraft. More than that, it must and it can enhance statecraft. And there is no reason that it shouldn't. Philanthropy, after all, is not a dirty word. It is part of the American experience. In fact, Alex de Tocqueville recognized that in writing in Democracy in America in 1835, he said that the philanthropic spirit was one of our country's greatest strengths. Oh, if he could see us today. Carnegie, Mellon, Rockefeller, and Ford, they all understood this. And their foundations still prove it to this day. Now, they may have been robber barons in their own time, but they did understand the value of their, of their money and how to take their fortune and transform that for the good of our country. And now, those old philanthropists are joined by new names like Gates and Buffett and some others, titans in business who will also be remembered for their great big hearts. And that big heart remains a characteristic of America. In, 19, in, in 2006, we gave away, Americans gave about $295 billion to charity. No other country on the face of the earth comes close. That big heart belongs not just to idealistic individuals or to formidable foundations. It also belongs to private, for-profit, multinational corporations, private businesses, big and small. I like to think that it includes Pfizer and what we refer to as our full asset model of philanthropy. That's a model that is long-term. It focuses not on the quantity of our giving, though we are a very big giver, over $1.7 billion in 2006, and the largest American uh, company giver for the last several years. It's, it's a model that looks for solutions that are scalable and sustainable, a model that uses the full resources of our company to support what is our giving philosophy, that is to participate in efforts and enterprises that have as their aim to either teach, to treat, to build, or to serve, or to do all four. And we're not by ourselves. I told you what we're doing in the fight against trachoma. 
I could tell you about the things that we're involved in with many other enterprises, and I'm certain during the Q&A session we'll have a chance to talk about that. But one of our sister companies, Merck, has a similar story as ours. They've been donating free of charge for 20 years going now the medication to treat uh, river blindness. Both of our companies, most all of our sector, are partners in one way or the other, but the two of us are partners in the Global Network for Neglected Tropical Diseases, as are GSK and Johnson & Johnson and others. That network looks at chronic, disabling, stigmatizing diseases that infect more than a billion people around the world. But it's not just Pfizer and Merck or people in our sector. It's not just the health industry. Others are working to improve the environment. If you look at Procter & Gamble and GE, offering education, seeking to feed the hungry. Of course, there is no question that we can do more as businesses. And there is no question that we can partner better with governments, foundations, and NGOs to do more and to do better. And that is what Bill Gates talked about when he told those at Davos this past year, that what we need is a creative capitalism, increasing its reach and scope so that more people can, in his words, make a profit or at least make a living serving those whose suffering is so great. The point is that whether you call it creative capitalism or something else, whether you accept our full asset model or another, we must fundamentally remodel our business and our partnerships so that we better serve people at the base of the pyramid. Because if we meet the challenge of finding a way to serve the tired and the poor, those huddled masses, and do business, or we serve them and get votes, we do good and we do well, then we will have something that truly is sustainable then we can and we will have reduced the inequality that exists in the world, and we will then have really changed the world. The new philanthropy can mean a new beginning for millions of people, billions of people in the world. Now, that's a tall order. Yet, I know from what we do alone, we are a large company, but we're just one company. But I know that what we do can make a meaningful difference. Now, what values drive a corporation today to invest precious shareholder dollars to demonstrate soft power? Well, first, in an age of value, a company's logo ought to stand for more than just what it sells. Certainly, Pfizer wants consumers to know who we are and what we sell. But we are more than our individual products. We want them also to have a sense about what we stand for as a company, what our values are in communities. And com consumers are very rational actors. They reward the good guys, and they will often punish the bad guys. Now, the evidence that this pays off may not be quite as ironclad in the sense of having a determinate monetary value, but we would have to suspend all of our common sense and mother wit to conclude that it is valueless. And we believe something else at Pfizer. These philanthropic philanthropic efforts are not just about who we help, but they're about who we hire, the quality of the people we recruit and retain. The Wall Street Journal this week pointed this out. They did a survey of 13 to 25 years old, 25-year-olds, the group that are now referred to as Generation Y, or the millennials, 
found that 80% of them want to work for a company that cares about how it contributes to society. They're saying, I don't want to park my values at the door. And they're asking us questions, what do we stand for? It is one of the reasons we're very proud and committed to our Global Health Fellows Program. Over the past five years, we've sent about 155 employees to help non-governmental non organizations in developing countries. We've also sent them to states that had weak and poor infrastructures who ask us uh, to send them some professional help to strengthen and professionalize their own bureaucracy. One of those people wrote in her journal of her experience in Rwanda. She said, on the bad days, when the frustrations seem too many, the challenges too hard, you remember the malnourished child who just wanted to hold your hand, or the woman who had to wait for 36 hours to have desperately needed surgery, and they make it all worth it. Or you go to the clinic that we funded in Kampala, Uganda, the Infectious Diseases Institute, in, in, in partnership with the Accordia Global Health Foundation. And you walk in Monday, and you see a quiet crowd, people looking down, no one talking to one another. And you wonder what's going on. You walk in the next day, or Tuesday, and everyone is laughing and talking, and everyone's playing dominoes or checkers, and we wonder what's happening until someone told us, well, on Tuesdays is the day that we pass out ARVs on Monday, that's the waiting list. It does make a difference. Volunteerism invigorates us. It reinforces our sense of mission. It sparks creativity. These kinds of programs that we're engaged in demonstrate corporate alignment with an individual sense of values. They present an opportunity for us to engage them in development opportunities that they, that they really desire. It not only broadens their perspective, it also improves our decision-making. We can do well by doing good. So corporate international volunteer programs, for example, represent a kind of emerging soft power. They're good for the volunteers they help, for the company, and for them. But of course, I'm giving this speech in Washington. Since when is it good enough just to have a good idea? One of my favorite stories is about three sons who left home, and each of them became wealthy, and they were so busy, they didn't have time to visit their mother, but they sent her big, expensive presents. And they just couldn't understand why she didn't seem to appreciate them. So one day, they all got together, and they began to talk about it. Milton said, you know, yeah, you know, I couldn't make it for Thanksgiving, but I sent mother a Mercedes. And she wrote back to me. She said, this is very nice, Milton, but I'm half blind. That car just sits in the garage. The second brother said, well, yeah, I, I, I didn't make it back either, but I bought mother a new house. And she wrote, she said, that was a very nice thought, Marvin, but I can't walk very well, so I just sit in one room. And the third brother says, well, you know, I got mom a parrot. He says, a parrot? Says, I got her a parrot. He says, well, you know, she's so religious. I got a parrot trained to recite every verse of the Bible. It took 20 years to train that parrot, and he can do it in three languages. She says, well, what did mom say about that? She wrote, she said, Mason, you were always the most thoughtful son. You knew just what I like. That chicken was delicious. <laughs> now, the, the, the point of this story is to caution us that giving isn't enough. 
if you want to work for the greater good, you have to give the right thing to the right people in the right way. No one-size-fits-all model ever works. We can't just do the right thing. We have to do things right. And, and why do we have to do things right? Because a billion people around the world are living lives of anguish. Our government cannot help people to renew their lives by itself. But with partnerships, all of us working as partners, soft, smart, sustainable power, we have a fighting chance to help our government do that. You know, after Warren Buffett made that historic announcement that he'd be giving the bulk of his fortune to philanthropic foundations, I heard a very interesting story. See, a few days after he had made the announcement, the recipient of $30 billion of that fortune, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, received a letter. It was from a man who wanted to share with them how he told his daughter, Olivia, about the gift and how it might be used to help unfortunate children, children who might get sick just because they didn't have the same kind of medicines that Olivia could get. Olivia listened to her father, and she said, I'd like to donate my life savings too. She was seven years old. Her contribution was $35. I kind of like that story because it reminds me that America's soft power is not just the province of the wealthy, though that helps. It's not merely the province of a multinational corporation, though we are helping in substantial ways. It's not the province of any one nonprofit anywhere, and they do wonderful things. It's the province of every one of us, public officials, corporate executives, artists, musicians, college students, even college students making an indelible mark on an Egyptian dentist who turned into a novelist. Even seven-year-olds can be infected with this disease. That's soft power. That's how we beat our swords into plowshares, how we will change the way the world sees us, how we will ensure that change is meaningful, systemic, and lasting. And that is how individuals and government, corporate America, and private foundations can work together for the greater good. Thank you very much. We're going to move into a more conversational style for the balance of our time here. Robert, one thing I'd like to raise sort of at the outset is the, what kind of change has happened internally within Pfizer and has it, as a result of this expanding philanthropy, and has it changed the business approach that Pfizer takes in the development of, of new products? Uh, and what I mean by that is taking on these responsibilities at the leadership level, getting your global health fellows out, it begins to change the internal culture and the dynamic within the corporation. Historically, the large, powerful uh, pharmaceutical companies have not been oriented much to the development of products for the poorest populations of the world, and that's been one of the great criticisms that one hears recurrently. 
And you mentioned that the, your involvement in the, uh, 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 the effort to develop new medicines for the neglected diseases and your involvement in that. Has this internal change, and maybe you can comment a bit more about how that internal change has evolved within Pfizer, has that changed your, your business model and your business approach to where you're giving greater priority to the development of future products that will be affordable and directly speak to the special disease burdens that the poorest face? Well, there are a lot of things you ask me in that question. It was a very long question. Um, let me see uh, the best way to respond to that that, that is candid uh, and, and shares with you exactly where we are. I think the biggest change is not in our research paradigm, and I'll talk about that in a second. The biggest change uh, is a sense of hopefulness and enthusiasm that actually we can be impactful in an area that we always had doubts about our ability to, to be impactful in. And that has motivated employees in, in research and development and in other parts of the company uh, to come out to talk about some of the things that we can, can do. I am not a subscriber to the, the suggestion that companies have never done research around neglected diseases. It actually is patently untrue. I talked about uh, trachoma uh, being served by an antibiotic. That's one of the oldest diseases in the world. Certainly there's not enough of that, but many, many products that the research-based industry uh, uh, have are treating many neglected diseases. Eighty percent of the neglected disease burden in the world today, of course, is AIDS, malaria, and TB. Uh, and there are many products, not nearly enough, for those scourges, and 20% of them are some of the other more difficult to pronounce diseases. So th there is a lot of research being done. It is often, I think, it has not been as supported in organizations like mine. That is certainly changing. Mm -hmm. uh, and with this sense about, well, we've got to engage with the neglected four billion, that's brought people who were doing work uh, in neglected disease, African sleeping sickness, uh, to the forefront to say, you know, we, we have this program here we've been working on for the last several years. Can we get more funding for it? So you begin to get this energy in some parts of the organization uh, that really would like to see us do more. Uh, so I think it's, it has had the conversation about the role of of government, and as the government has increased its support in this area around the world, developed country governments, it certainly gotten the attention of people inside the company. So one, I think, has had a salutary effect that the conversation is happening. Mm -hmm. Two, it's caused our employees to be much more uh, aggressive about ensuring that the company is responsive. Uh, and three, it's caused us to reassess how you do business in in the world to serve the neglected four billion, which is not uh, obvious on its face. A healthcare company, you want to serve people, bring them better healthcare. Uh, what are the appropriate products and services to take to them? What are the diagnostic needs of an area like that? What are, what's the healthcare infrastructure look like to properly prescribe? What are the training needs that are necessary so that the business model must, must renovate itself to figure out how to serve that patient. 
we take for granted the way a medical transaction happens here. We get on the phone, we can make an appointment, we call the doctor, we go to the doctor, the doctor says you need this, you need that. If you need a medicine, they give you a prescription, you go to the drugs. We take it for granted. That doesn't exist in most places in the world. People may go to a kiosk to get their medicine where they may buy their cigarettes, or they may buy their Coke, or they may buy their, their chewing gum or tobacco. It's a very different infrastructure and the company must prepare itself to operate in that environment. That is a very significant challenge. We cannot do that alone. We must have partners to do that. People who serve those environments and have experience in those environments. Uh, we, I mentioned in my speech the experience of going to the Infectious Diseases Institute in Kampala, Uganda on one day and seeing unhappy people and the next day people who were quite enthusiastic. There we tried to build a real capacity building infrastructure. And our idea was to partner with the government of Uganda, the United States, other governments, the private sector, to build a state-of-the-art diagnostic and training center uh, in the heart of Africa. And what we would do, we'd do this training. We wanted people to come from all over the continent. And we would have in-service days. We would close down the clinic or one day a week so that the staff could be well-trained. Excellent lab built by, designed by Johns Hopkins University. We funded it. Uh, just got a big award for being one of the best labs in the world. That rarely ever happens outside of North America. Fantastic. But what did we land ourselves in? We had this very Western orientation, the absolute right intentions. But we landed in the middle of Kampala City big urban center in Uganda, big AIDS problem. The patient population was going to overwhelm our effort to teach because people needed to be treated. Forget about all this training. I want, they've never seen a facility like this before, ever. And so you have to recalibrate yourself and think about that. So the company actually has learned a lot of lessons. One of the funniest things that we learned is in the course of building this clinic. We were building it to world-class standards. And we got into a squabble with the Ugandans about um, whether or not the building would have a fire extinguisher system. They did not have major fires in Uganda. Nobody had ever remembered having a big fire. And the fire extinguisher system was one and a half million dollars. And they said, no, 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 we're not going to waste any money on that. We've got other things we can do. So we, you know, we know how to put out a fire if it happens. You know, you, we, we'll do that. Well, we said, no, we're not building this clinic without a fire extinguisher system. But we don't need that, they told us. That's a Western thing. That's what you do in the United States. We said, yeah, well, we're not building a clinic here that we couldn't put up in New York City. Because the slightest thing happens, and there's no fire extinguisher system, no one will remember that we built the clinic. They'll just remember that we built a defective clinic. So those learnings we have uh, that are very useful in figuring out how we remodel uh, our business. And it's been a, it's been a great ride uh, to learn it. Thank you. Thank you. What I suggest we do is take, take an initial three comments, questions. Please be very brief. Please just stand up. We'll bring a microphone to you. Uh, and, uh, uh, and then we'll bundle those together and come back to Robert. Who, would, who cares to add a Yes, ma'am. Hi, Suzanne Spaulding. Um, clearly, Pfizer is engaged in some terrific work addressing 
very real and pressing health needs that are out there today that are urgent. I'm wondering though, looking a little bit farther down the road, and we don't know how far down the road, at the possibility of a pandemic, for example, um, whether Pfizer is engaged in, involved in the planning for that, or whether uh, Pfizer has, for example, even done an internal assessment of the resources that in the event of a pandemic, Pfizer might have uh, available to bring to bear, whether it's diagnostics or, or, um, or other things. Thank you. Yes, right here. Uh, James Verai, I'm the director for the State Department's Office of uh, Corporate Social Responsibility. I very much appreciate your comments on how the private sector can complement government efforts uh, on the diplomacy side. Uh, but I also have a question. Uh, you've already touched a little bit on this, but if you could talk a little bit more about how uh, CSR efforts, philanthropic efforts, are, are often uh, done to fill gaps, uh, service gaps, uh, left by, by governments. It, in your efforts, how do you balance your desire to, to do good things with the need for governments to eventually be accountable for many of the services that, that you provide through your philanthropic efforts? Great, thank you. Right here in front, yes. I'm Gabriella Rigg, also from the State Department. Um, and I'm wondering, in terms of Pfizer's decision making with your new partnership model, what kind of criteria you use to determine those new partners to be able to make the most impact. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, with respect to the, the readiness for a pandemic, yes, that's, that's actually uh, quite exciting for a, for a major company like ours, particularly one that has a deep uh, infectious diseases bench, uh, as we have historically at Pfizer. Many people don't know that it was Pfizer who actually commercialized penicillin during World War II. Before, it was just in a petri dish, but we figured out how to mass produce it. Uh, so that, that's, a, that's, a, that's a strong suit for the company. Many of you may remember the, uh, the uh, bird flu uh, uh, scare that we all had several years ago. Quite immediately after we learned of this, we have the largest compound library in the world, government or private, and we went to see if we had anything in our compound library that we shared with the NIH. And, and we shared many things with the NIH. The result is, of course, is that they mapped that disease pretty fast. And we figured out that we would have something, we, we the industry and the government, that, that we would be able to respond to. So that actually fostered very good partnerships with the NIH and other uh, major institutions uh, around pandemic disease. So the answer is yes. We have our own internal organization to figure out how we would respond, not just a crisis management for the company, but that people would be looking to the company to see what we can do. So yes, we have inside uh, uh, an effort like that underway. Uh, we hope we never, of course, have to register or trigger it, uh, but that, that is underway. One of the advantages of having such a large compound library and to be in several places around the world is that you can readily access that information. Uh, and, and we are quite excited about uh, how quickly the, the uh, Asian, uh, that the bird flu was, was dealt with, uh, because very quickly, I think from lots of different companies, we had enough information to know that we could create something that would be useful. In a pandemic situation, of course, what matters is whether or not your infrastructure could accommodate uh, responding to so many people. I told, I, I said once to someone, you know, if 
if 10 or 20% of the people in the United States had a cold at one time, if all of us just got a cold at one time, that would break down our public health care system. We couldn't manage it. Uh, so think about a pandemic in an environment where the infrastructure is, is more slender than this. That's where we need to begin to put resources to think about how, do we, how would we respond. I think the medical technology, the science, has improved markedly. And I think we could probably suffer through some things. But our infrastructures around the world, particularly in, in poorer countries, uh, is in shambles. And they could not. So they would bear a disproportionate burden uh, of anything like that. Now, with respect to the question about CSR uh, uh, efforts uh, being a, a, a proxy to, to take care of some of the service gaps caused by the lack of, of, of government effort, uh, I, I would like to kind of refocus that question, if you don't mind. CSR is not just philanthropy. CSR is the way companies embed business practices throughout their businesses. If we want to, to reduce our environmental footprint as a company, and we are closing manufacturing plants around the world and you know, less emissions and the like, or that we contract out with a manufacturer. We got to be sure that when we do such a thing, that we contract out, that that manufacturer isn't polluting the environment. That, that we have a corresponding responsibility if we're truly reducing our environmental footprint. So in everything we do as a business, the, the kinds of diseases we choose to research, we have this huge compound library. Well, there's a Tropical Disease Research Institute at the WHO why not give them access to that tropical disease, to our compound library, to be able to get leads for drugs for neglect tropical diseases? Those are things that we have to do. That's not necessarily a service gap on the part of governments. That's something that we ought to do because we can do, because it doesn't cost us a lot to do it, and the benefit is enormous. Yes, the work of some NGOs, the work of some corporations, certainly and oftentimes, unfortunately, feel breathtaking gaps on the part of governments. Governments all over the world, including this one, fail their citizens. They do. We have many examples of that. We have a, recent, a big recent example of that that we all know about. In healthcare, that failure is colossal around the world. In education, it's huge. What we do in girls' education, the poor girls' education in some countries, cultural, but the retardation of half the world's population sometimes, those are big issues. Yes, those are tremendous gaps that often companies, foundations, and others seek to fill. Unfortunately, that is not a systemic solution to those problems. Societies work when governments work. When economies evolve and change, when, when, when systems of capital work to help people develop their fullest potential, we are a contributor in that effort as, as a company. And we do lots of things we're very proud of. And we try not to do what we call one-offs. We try to do things that actually are going to really build capacity. And we, we want to be a catalytic uh, funder 
that people will see. We've done something as proof of concept. Our Infectious Diseases Institute in Uganda, we had a, an idea. We wanted to take it to scale, but others have to take it to scale. We, we wanted to prove the concept so that others could take it to scale. Yes, I think that there are huge gaps uh, left by governments. And, and, and even countries in, in, in the developing world, their investment in health or education or the environment is really less than what they have the capacity to do. They can do more. One of the, the, the great benefits we've seen in recent years is, is we'll cancel debt if you invest what you would have paid on debt service in education for children and girls especially, if you'll invest in your health care system, if you will, will be a better steward of your natural resources. Those are very positive things that I think uh, that over time we may see some su sustained results. It is hard for a private sector person to see, as I do, so much failure in health and education uh, around the world. Uh, it, it's hard to see that. But it's also hard to be critical of, of governments or societies where you see just uh, un, unbelievable poverty. That's, that's, poverty is a huge, is a huge problem. Uh, and you ask yourself, when you're investing a shareholder's dollars, whether or not that investment uh, has the kind of return to your shareholder you want to have. All companies have to ask that question. Our shareholders have said to us that actually we think that's a part of having a license to operate. That's a part of sustainability of your business. So we are able, we have the license to do that inside the company. Now we probably haven't done enough yet because we haven't reached their limit. Uh, but, but we continue to believe uh, that what we do uh, is, is fairly sustainable. The question about partnership criteria, how do we select and choose partners? That's, that is a very good question. Uh, we, we, we are proud of the kinds of partnerships we have and the quality of the partners we have. We look for for partners who bring to the table things that we don't have. We look for partners uh, that have some experience in places we don't have experience. We want partners who are not afraid or unwilling to work cooperatively with a private company, a multinational company. That occasionally gets things wrong and is going to be in the newspaper for something. Uh, that the public's going to read about. So we don't want them to run every time they see that we've had a problem or someone in our sector has had a problem. I think what we've learned from partnerships is really cultural. Because every, every, every partnership, every, every partner brings something to the table. Now often we have the most money to put on the table. That's why people often want to partner with us. We have medicines. But that's not the only thing that makes things work. I gave you the example of the latrines. Now, well, we latrines. Having respect for what each partner brings to the table is very vital. But also, 
understanding the cultural nuance is very vital. I live in the United States. I hate early morning conference calls as I see Carol Spahn here and Betsy Cavendish here. I work with them in their organizations. Eight o'clock conference calls, don't call me. <laughs> Yet, I have a partner in Nigeria or Burkina Faso or Tanzania. I got to make an eight o'clock conference call. Or if I have a partner in China, I got to be on the phone at 11 o'clock at night. I don't want to be. But if you're going to have a strong partnership, it, it requires having some of those cultural sensitivities. Don't even talk about cultural sensitivities around gender issues becoming extremely important when you have, you know, it's a very, very, very big deal. It's nothing for me to think about going to dinner on a Friday night. Well, in a lot of societies in the world, not the right day to go out for dinner. You know, I want to be home on Sundays or go to church on Sunday, whatever I do on Sunday. Well, that's a work day for some people. So those things can trip up a partnership. Now, it may sound silly, but I found those things to be the little things you never thought about to be the things that kind of retard your progress. Once you sort of really think about those and move those forward, we are, we are very excited. I keep mentioning the IDI because we learned so much doing that. When we built the IDI in Uganda, I told Steve this at lunch. We said we're going to do as much as we can use in Uganda, we're going to use. We're going to build, we're going to use Ugandan workers, we're going to use Ugandan or African products, whatever we can do. And we were all ready. Well, we got over there, we couldn't, nobody, we couldn't find steel-toed boots. We couldn't find hard hats. We had to buy those and bring them over. But once we did, we introduced a learning to them. I told you about the issue about the air conditioning. Well, they'd never had anyone on a project keeping health and safety records at a construction project. We were able to introduce that learning to them. And the construction company that built the IDI then got a contract because it had been with a partner with World Class Standards, got a contract, and it's its first big contract, to build the high commission for the UK in Uganda. We're very proud of that. And, and, and that uh, being culturally sensitive enough to, to know what we had to bring to the table. And they brought other things to the table for us. Thank you. Let's take another round uh, in the back. Yes, please. Hi, Holly Weiss with the Corporate Social Responsibility Initiative at Harvard University. Um, I lived for four years in Uganda, so thank you for the IDI. It was a significant contribution to the health system there. Can you just uh, speak up a bit, please? Sure. Um, I wanted to ask about, uh, about drugs and vaccines and, uh, and what's been the evolution since you've been on seat in terms of the company thinking and how you take the decisions about uh, product donation, uh, about, uh, about uh, subsidies, about full cost uh, uh, provision um, in various overseas settings. How, you know, what's that dynamic and, and what does the conversation look like right now inside the company? Thank you. Sam? Samuel Adeni uh, Jones, uh, HHS. Um, I'm still trying to <clears throat> understand what your guiding principle in choosing what you do for, you know, take a country. And, and when you look at trachoma, where you're going for perhaps elimination of disease, then you look at the IDI. I mean, I know everybody praises the IDI, but one of the questions asked at the beginning of the IDI 
was why build a Cadillac when you could build a one Cadillac when you could build a hundred Volkswagen. So I'd like to know what's, what's the, the guiding, strategic guiding principle to use in deciding what to do. And the follow-up question is public-private partnership. You know, it, to be nice, uh, most of us in the government sector talk about public-private partnership, but they're not easy to establish with the private no. sector. From the private sector's point of view, how do you see what are the principles that should guide, you know, working with, with, with government? We have big things like PMI, PEPFAR. Thank you. Right here, sir. Right behind you. Thank you. Paolo von Schirach, Schirach Report. My question is about scalability. You've, I think you alluded to that in your presentation. And it seems to me probably the biggest challenge. Everybody likes the idea of seeing these new alliances, the private sector getting involved in development issues. And this is all well and good. And there is, however, as you know, a proliferation, hundreds, thousands of NGOs, and everybody doing something or another. And uh, effectiveness is in scale. And I think this is the biggest challenge at every level, whether it's a government assistance or private sector involved. Just a small example, and I don't know how this is going to go forward. Just read recently that General Electric has entered a compact with the, the Millennium Challenge Corporation, which has a, a large brief <coughs> and, uh, and uh, a portfolio of countries to see in what way their activities in uh, infrastructure development, sanitation, water, whatever, uh, can uh, be impactful in the planning and activities of the MCC around the world. Now, of course, we, we shall see how that, if and how that works. But in what way is your company concerned about reaching scale and therefore impact? I'm going to reverse the order of the questions. I want to try to answer this one first, and I think it actually relates to the second one. Scalability is probably, apart from skills shortages, your biggest challenge, uh, what we've found. I mean, when we invested in the IDI, our hope was we would be a catalytic contributor, and this would take off like wildfire. What we discovered is that governments, when we went to the governments and said, you know, we have this wonderful thing here, you should invest in it, it's going to be really, it's going to be world class, uh, it's going to be, they said, well, why do you need me? You, you got deep pockets, you got Pfizer. So what we thought would be an incentive for people to rally around turned out to be a barrier initially, and that's the lack of sophistication today on the part of governments and some funders. I think they've, they've grown a lot. We had trouble getting PEPFAR money for AIDS patients at this clinic. Because everyone says, well, you're associated with Pfizer, and Pfizer has big pockets. Well, we can't do another one of these if we are saddled with, with forever owning it. We'll never be able to reach scalability if the thing we have to do is fund something that we thought, once you saw it could operate, that if you attract other funders. Now, luckily, that's happening today. Uh, thanks to a lot of efforts, Carol Spahn, who's here, Warner Green, who's at, at the Gladstone Institute, that's ex actually happening, great, fabulous director. But that's a big challenge, because if we were not able to make this conversion where people begin to say, well, you know, Pfizer's 67 million, uh, 60 or $70 million investment was a great start, but they need a billion dollar investment. Well, we can't do that. But what we can do is go out maybe in another region of Africa and say, well, we, we're going to do this, and maybe we don't build the Cadillac in this region. Maybe we build the Volkswagen. 
But so that's a big problem. Trachoma turned out was scalable. We started this little NGO. We're now in 16 countries. We're progressively moving. We now see that we are able to treat this little NGO, as wonderful as it is, really can't do it by itself. So we're now looking at the NGO itself, and we're supporting it, is looking at how it, 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 it combines with another organization to reach the scale we need to, to, to reach the 2020 goal of eliminating blinded trachoma. But we have all the data in the world. We know our strategy works. We've seen it work in 16 countries today. We're in 250,000 districts, so we, and we have the technology. So now it's being taken, the, the next step is to take it broadly to scale. We believe we can. As to why, with respect to the IDI, we chose to build a Cadillac as a set of, uh, one Cadillac instead of, well, one very good car, uh, instead of uh, one small car. Um, ten. Uh, 10 small cars. Uh, we've gotten that question a lot. And we ourselves have doubted whether or not um, it was conceived properly. We now know we conceived it properly, and here's why. To defeat the scourge, we must have proper training of not just doctors and nurses and other kinds of clinicians, but home health care workers. But to bring the newest kinds of treatments to Africa so that it is not always lagging, to spur in the medical school the kind of training to specialize in treating this disease, you needed a, a cadre of professionals, from, from experts around the world, who could really put this together. Nowhere on the continent is there that kind of center of excellence, except in Uganda today. It would be an abomination if the only major hospital center in Washington, D.C. was the Washington Hospital Center. We got Georgetown, we have Howard, we have Greater Southeast, in Maryland, we have others, in Virginia, we have Inova, we have lots of them. Well, we believed that what Africa was lacking was a place where research could be conducted, where people could come and, and have a world-class lab with patients who lived in those regions, we believe that actually there's a value and benefit to having this, you call it a Cadillac, but we call it a center of excellence. That, you know, let someone else do the small clinic somewhere that just treats or teaches about prevention. That wasn't Pfizer's something to do. Our something to do because we had the wherewithal to do it, was to build a world-class entity so that medical professionals in Africa could see what one looked like. We laughed when we built the IDI because the School of Architecture at Macquarie University had not seen a building built on that campus in 35 years. They'd never seen how you put an HVAC system in a building. Well. That's a value, that's real value to the people of Uganda and other parts of the continent. 27 countries have sent healthcare workers to the IDI for training. For over 40% of the required healthcare workers in Uganda have been trained at the IDI. 
You couldn't do that with 10 little Volkswagens. We have, we, 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 we built the capacity. Now we're now bursting at the seams. But the, the concept was we want to be a center of excellence. We want to serve the continent, not just Uganda or the region. And we are beginning to accomplish that because now governments now see we're now getting PEPFAR money for the patients there. So that's something we don't have to fund. We can fund that lab. We can fund more research, scholarly research. It, 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 we have doubted sometimes whether the model was right, but I think we're, we're satisfied that it was. Now, there was a question that I got asked essentially about our business model around donations or pricing uh, uh, and, and how we've changed and evolved. I think that was the import of your question. A very timely question. I think in the last eight years or so, which happily or unhappily coincides about the time I arrived at Pfizer, I've been there seven years now, uh, we've, say, we've seen a wholesale change in both how the public demands a response from us as a healthcare company, being a, a major uh, producer of medicines, uh, but we've also seen how we have re we've changed in how we responded. As I alluded earlier, serving the neglected four billion is a challenge in and of itself. Uh, we are now thinking about ways to do that that we've never thought about before. I use an example, the 70% of the drug business in South Africa is state tender, where you bid on contract. That's not something we've ever done. We don't do that. You know, we've done one or two jurisdictions, but that's not, that's, not how, that's not what we know how to do. Well, we're thinking about institutional buying. We're thinking about participating in tenders. We're thinking about creating a basket of products, as opposed to trying to price a product individually, pricing a basket of products and services. Because what we now know is, it's not just medicines we want to bring to people. We want to bring them better health care. And what they lack in these environments are the capacities to have better health care. So we have to bring some services. We're, we're, we're looking at exploring the idea with partners around some microinsurance systems. I don't know how far we'll get, but the company has done an about face about all of those things. And all of those things are on the table trying to talk to governments that forbid a rebate system or forbid different price part points within markets on the medicine, trying to talk to them about, you've got to change your law. For me to help you, you've got to help me. We can't sell to people whose income is $100,000 a year or more the same thing we should be selling to people uh, in Burkina Faso whose income is $300 a year. That model can't work. It can't work. So the company is actually trying to convince its partners, okay, we hear you. We know this hasn't worked as well. It's brought great things to bear, but we, we now know we have to remodel the model. And that is a very active and fertile conversation going on at Pfizer and loads of companies today. Uh, one of the things we talked about at lunch, what sometimes I think my friends in the NGO community don't understand is that they have won. And they don't know how to accept the yes. Because you, you, this, my grandmother used to say, you know, you, 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 you attract more bees with honey than you do with vinegar. I think companies are looking for competent partners 
willing partners to help show us how to get this right. And sometimes the rhetoric around pharmaceutical pricing and things like that, you could see it in the U.S. election today, even in the U.S., it kind of gets out of hand where it becomes a kind of theology. It's beyond politics. It's, 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 you know, it's theology. Well, I don't think solving problems is theological. They're practical. And what we most need are for, and what we most look for in partners is people who can help us figure out how to solve problems. People who will let us, let us show them how we solve the problem and show us how to, how to solve a problem. So I think that the, the conversation inside the organization today is radically different than what it was a decade ago. Radically different. And that is because we have, ex- we have been urged on by people who have opposed us. We have learned from our critics. We have listened to what they've had to say. And colleagues inside companies, you know, companies are just people who make them up. Colleagues are telling us we've got to do it differently. When we go to to recruit for new talent, they're telling us, I'll only come if you've figured out global access. I'll only come if I can participate in that global health fellows company. And, And there's a war today. When they say there's a war on talent, there's a war on talent. So I think we are we 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 are listening better and learning better. And I think you will see across the sector very acceptable responses to the problem that you've identified. Thank you. We have uh, uh, time for, let's say, two final questions right here. I apologize to those that we won't be able to come to today. Yes, please. Thank you, by the way, for your remarks. They were really, is this on? Yes. Um, I'm Diana Lady Dugan. Chairman of Cyber Century Forum, but also an occasional pontificator at CSIS. Uh, I wanted to go back to linking together a couple things that you talked about, scalability and the neglected four billion. Uh, Setting aside the issue, and I think a lot of us appreciate the importance of having a center of excellence, improving a center of excellence, where it wouldn't otherwise be acknowledged even by the people there or their neighbors or developed countries. But I haven't heard you mention anything about utilizing, and I hate to sound trite because we're not talking about digital divides. Right now, the developing world are the fastest growing mobile phone markets in the world. Uh, And I think you uh, would obviously know from your travels in Africa that uh, they have been using them much more creatively than we have for a long time. And when you talk about scalability uh, and the neglected 4 billion, and now over 80% of the population of the world is in, within reach of a mobile phone signal. And we don't have to talk about the developed country arrogance of real time and everyone having their own handset. We're talking about shared use, mm-hmm. re, uh, secondary information, sure. and so on. So one, I wanted to know what you were doing, and if anything, in the healthcare area, you should be perhaps uh, providing some vanguard leadership in a virtual center of excellence. Thank you. Ma'am, right here. And then we'll come back. Hi, uh, Nancy Kiger with Africare, and I was actually in Kampala two weeks ago and at Macquarie Hospital, and it, I'll bet it was 35 years before the last building was built. Thank <laughs> you for your efforts there. Sure. I just wondered, um, um, are you thinking about replicability um, for that somewhere else? And 
increasing the, um, the training and getting more people out into the continent. Um, it's, it's an impressive task you've got before you. Thank well, you. Oh, yeah, oh, that's another no, one. Then, oh, let's, yeah. let's just take those two. Okay. Um, well, that's a decision of the uh, Accordia Global Health Foundation and the IDI as to whether or not they expand. I do know they have a new campaign, the Accordia Global Healthcare Foundation now to raise money. One of the options is as to whether or not you have a satellite or we try to do something different in another region. So that's not a Pfizer decision. I mean, we're now just a funder. Uh, we don't drive their decision making and they're sort of unleashed and they're on their own and they're moving forward. So uh, we certainly would like to see this replicated elsewhere, but that's not our decision to make. Um, uh, with respect to the issue about a virtual center of excellence and uh, telemedicine and how to use that, we are quite intrigued by that. There are a lot of skeptics internally about how it would work. We had recently a major, uh, we called it a design shop, where we were trying to look at the issue of global access for the next four billion. And we invited a number of stakeholders, uh, NGOs and others who do work in this area. We invited Nokia, FedEx, Coca-Cola, uh, companies that, that have figured out how to develop a market among poor people, and particularly Nokia, where, you know, I've found, you're right, phones are everywhere. Uh, and we're trying to understand that. Now, I, out, coming out of that were many different uh, suggestions about things we could do to remodel the business model, according to the, the uh, person in the back who asked me that question. What did not survive was a suggested product around telemedicine. Uh, we thought it was probably a little too much of a leap for us today, for us to do it, that it should be demonstrated by someone else. If we can contribute to that, you know, we'd figure out a way to do it. But, but I mean, it's a timely question. I didn't mention it, uh, not because we haven't thought about it. We've actually had a robust debate about it at this four-day meeting with some of our partners who counseled us uh, not yet. Now, that doesn't mean that it can't happen somewhere else. Someone else can do it, and then we could take some learnings from that. But that is not something that we've done. Now, what I do know is at the IDI, people have approached the IDI about a way to do uh, some virtual training. And I know that is actively under discussion at the IDI, mainly with our alumni network, uh, in Uganda and other places where they've gotten the training and we wanted them to go out and train others, well, one of the best ways to do that, and there's a whole system set up, is around a virtual center of excellence. But as a company, we, we've not sort of decided to move in that direction. We're at the end of our time here. Robert, uh, your passion, your candor is very evident. And we're really grateful that you've come and spent so much time Thank with you. us here today. So we have Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much.